It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. With today's special episode of Behind the Screen, we present the full conversation from our annual Hollywood Reporter Cinematographer Roundtable, which was recorded September 29th at the Trust Building in downtown Los Angeles. Our guests include Roger Deakins, who lends 1917 and The Goldfinch, Natasha Breyer, Honey Boy, Caesar Charloni, The Two Popes, Caleb Deschanel, The Lion King, Rodrigo Prieto, The Irishman, and Robert Richardson, who lends Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Edited versions of this roundtable are additionally available in The Hollywood Reporter, in print and online. Meanwhile, last week's episode of Behind the Screen features the new Hollywood Reporter animation roundtable, featuring filmmakers behind Abominable, Frozen 2, How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, Klaus, and Toy Story 4. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to a special episode of The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter Roundtable, Cinematographers. Could I ask each of you to introduce yourselves? Bob, would you like to start? Sure. I'm uh, Bob Richardson, and uh, the most recent film I've shot is uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Rodrigo Prieto, and I shot The Irishman. I'm Roger Deakins, here for 1917 and Goldfinch. I'm Caleb De and I'm here for The Lion King. I am Cesar Charlone, and I'm here for The Two Popes. So I'm Natasha Breyer, and I shot Honey Boy. Okay, welcome everyone. The director-cinematographer collaboration is a critical one, and I'd like to start by talking about the relationship with your directors. Bob, for you, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was your sixth film with Quentin Tarantino. Tell us about how that relationship works. This year worked uh, better than it ever has in the past. We have seemingly found a balance between each other and uh, the ups and downs. He was in a remarkable, strong and bright spirits on this film which is evident if you watch the film. It has a, lumin- a luminous quality to his direction. So this was one of my best years with Quentin, although I really haven't had a bad one. Although the first one was, there were a few storms. First one being Kill Bill. Yeah, first one being Kill Bill. There were a few storms that came in, but you learned to work with them. It wasn't, and, uh, but we're very much in sync. This one was the most in sync I've had with him. What was the initial conversation that you had when he brought the script to you, because he didn't even show you the full script. Yeah, no, I showed up at his house, and uh, immediately there was a tequila. We sat outside. Margarita, actually a very good margarita, too. He makes a fantastic margarita. Uh, I thought he was a mezcal guy. (laughs) I sat down and chatted with him outside, and talked about that. He didn't know, he wanted me to read the script, but he said, uh, let's have a conversation, but... I want you first to hit, like here, would you want to shoot in 70, 35? I said, well, let's read it, because he was still considering both. And then he sat me down on a table inside of a living room. And uh, he was in the living room as well. So I was constantly being watched while I was reading. And the script was 170 pages long at that point. And I read the script, and I'm going through it. And I'm making notes because it was so far out of my league in terms of all the references to past, in terms of television shows, to entertainers, to singers, to pieces of music. So I was constantly making notes. So it took quite a bit of time, but Quentin never once left the room. And his eyes were on me the entire time, which is rather an uncomfortable position to be in. (laughs) But since I knew him well, I wasn't terribly intimidated, but I would notice periodically that his eyes would flick towards me to see if there was a smile on my face. And uh, when I finished it, I was like, "Uh, Quentin. I have the last act. There was no last act. I had no idea how the film ended. And he said, no, you're not going to get that till later. And then we had dinner. (laughs) And a few more margaritas, and I stayed till about 2 o'clock in the morning. I did take Uber, by the way, I want you all to know. (laughs) And I went home, and uh, a little bit inebriated, but also tremendously excited by the script. 
Cesar, you've worked with Fernando on films including City of God and Constant Gardner. Tell us about your collaborative process. And much, much more. We work in commercials for ages. We, we've been, Fernando is my, my uh, padrino de casamiento, my um, godfather, marriage godfather. We have a very, very close relationship. So when we did City of God, we had been working together for lots, a long, long time. Actually, he had invited me to do a film before that I didn't feel comfortable, but, you know, so somebody else did it. But we have a, a very close collaboration doing little things for television and clips and so. So it, it came like naturally. Actually, when, when we did City of God, there is a, a very nice episode. We work a lot, a lot like every one of us does before on the table, discussing and discussing. So everything, when you go on set, everything is more or less established. So a friend of us visited us in, in City of God and came up to me at the day, at the end of the day, he spent the day with us. And when he was leaving, he says, is everything okay with Fernando? Yeah, why? Because I don't see you guys speaking. We don't need to. <laughs> Because, you know, we had talked so much that I knew what he wanted. And, and, and today with video assistant, the monitor, you, you know, you show him and, yeah, it's that way. So, um, so yeah, we have a, a habit and, you know, we, we, we develop this habit of hours and hours of table going through everything, references, and I bring some books. To, today you don't bring any more books, you bring links, you know, see this, see that, and, and you know, start doing notes and advancing and going forward and, and getting to it. And then what we'll probably do, like we did in this film, is we had a long, very long sequence in a garden, 111 pages. So we took some dummies to the set and started doing like storyboard, photo boards, we call them, you know, we could do this here, this there, and, and, and that's, you know, and that time it's the both, both of us in the garden with nobody asking questions, just the time to think and the time to play around and say, how about if he comes from here and, you know, so it's that, I love that. When I give lectures, I joke that my work is 40% pre-production, 40% post-production, 20% on set. Because I try to, you know, have as much as I can decided before I go on set so I don't interfere with the relationship director actors so much everything is more or less encaminado on its way right rodrigo this is your third film with martin scorsese mm -hmm. how did the two of you like to work well um i think on this movie on the irishman is where uh felt that he uh, had a clear sense of what he wanted from the get-go when i met him on wolf of wall street uh, i remember him telling me i i don't know i don't i don't have a grasp on what this movie should look like, and so there was a long, this longer discussion on, on on Wolf of Wall Street. It took much longer, I think, to figure out how we we're going to approach it. On this one, from the get go, I think he understood Frank Sheeran's mindset and how he wanted to represent that. Because for for Marty, the camera uh, writes in a way; it, it's expressive, you know. So. So every camera angle has a, a meaning to it, and if the camera moves or it doesn't, there is always a reason for that. And he does extensive shot listing, and sometimes you know diagrams and drawings, and uh, so he shares that with me, and that's the way it's been since I started working with him. So he translates his scribbles that he does in the script uh, for me because it's sometimes hard to read, and I get a photocopy of it, and then okay, that becomes the guide of how we're going to shoot the movie. And he pretty much sticks to it. Um, of course, uh, he also allows for, especially with the actors, for their input and improvisation and all these sort of things. But um, in this case, he, from the beginning, he said he wanted it to be, to have the sense of uh, the routine of, of this man who's a killer, right? He, he, he's doing this job, so he wanted like clockwork to have this, uh, his, his part of the film feel like he's just making his job. So much less fancy camera work, let's say. Although there is, you know, the flourishes and all that, but um, so that was interesting. And also from the very beginning, the first time we even he even mentioned the movie to me, he threw out a little thing that then became for me very important. He said that he thought that this should be like a home movie, but not Super 8 or Grainy 16 or handheld or any of that. So, so how do you do a home movie if you don't do any of those things, right? 
so that became a, a big challenge and for me because he didn't explain anything further but then that's how I thought to actually emulate still photography of, of the 50s and 60s and, and, and the, the emotions of those different eras so that was sort of what inspired that. So sometimes he'll say very specific things and, and uh, very specific diagrams in his shot list and sometimes it'll just be something abstract like that and, and, and that's thrilling. I really enjoy it. Uh, both. I enjoy listening to him describing very precisely how he imagines the shot and then also his, uh, the freedom you have also as an artist to, to a point bring your own stuff to the table. So you dress for me? And this is how you dress in Florida? In a suit? For me? Anywhere. Florida, Timbuktu, I dress in a suit. For a meeting. And you're late. What? You're late. And it was traffic. Yeah, it's traffic. <laughs> Wasn't it traffic? You give me it traffic. traffic. What do you what, what do you want from us? It was bump bumper. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's uh, it's bad, you know. Traffic. I never waited for anyone who was late more than ten minutes in my life. I'd say 15. 15 is right. No, 10. I don't think so. 10 is not enough. You have to take traffic into account. That's, that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm taking traffic into account. That's why it's 10. I still say 15. No, 10. Fine, we, we disagree on that. Well, how oh. about 12 and a half minutes? There we go. Hey, 12 and a half. Middle, right it's in the middle. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, more than 10 is saying something. Are you saying something to me? No, I'm here. Caleb, tell us about working with John Favreau on The Lion King. Yeah, well, you know, I'd known John because my daughter Zoe had done with film uh, Elf with him years before, so I'd known him, and then I'd seen Jungle Book, and I was really impressed with the work that he'd done there. And, you know, I'm, I'm one who, every number of years, wants to do a film that my kids could see when they were little, and now my grandkids can see. And, and so I was excited about doing this because I've always been attacked, you know, I've always been really attracted to films that are sort of mythological. And The Lion King is sort of a, a real mythological story. But I was really concerned about it being like taking some kind of calculus or analytic geometry class because it was all going to be done in computers. Um, and he assured me that he really was interested in me doing it because of the reality that I brought to films over the years and, you know, from the Black Stallion on, you know, the kind of, you know, attention to detail and everything. And, uh, but I was still concerned, but then I met with uh, Rob Legato, who's the visual effects supervisor, and we went, you know, downtown and we went into an office and there were these tools that he had sort of created, which were you know, very much like the tools I'm used to. I mean, there was a camera, it was a virtual camera, and there were dollies, but they were virtual, and you would go into a 3D space, and it was literally like your reality. And um, we ended up going to, uh, to Africa for a couple of weeks, and we filmed with a, you know, an ARRI 65 camera and did a lot of sort of background material to sort of convince us and, and to really kind of feed us on what the reality was like in, in Africa. Then when we started the movie, it was very much like doing a regular movie. And, you, and we very much didn't want it to feel like, you know, you could do anything. So we kind of restricted ourselves. At first, it was, it was going to be long lenses and the kind of things that you would do in the old-fashioned documentaries. But then we started looking at modern documentaries like, you know, Planet Earth 2 and things like that. And the, the things that they do and how close they get to the animals. And even in Africa, we would be filming and... You know, I would be upset with my assistant because it was going out of focus. And then he goes, it's inside minimum focus. And there's a lion, you know, like five feet away. And I, I suddenly realized that we really had the freedom, you know, to really tell the story the way we wanted and have a regular, you know. And, um, you know, I mean, the, the only thing that's missing because, you know, these characters are sort of fixed in their action when we film them is the sort of serendipity of these sort of wonderful moments that you get with a live actor who comes up with some idea that, so, you know, our serendipity became, you know, our ability to do things, you know, that were really quite extraordinary that you obviously could not do in real time, because, or real life, because you'd be dealing with dangerous animals. So we would have, you know, in our virtual space, we would have dollies and we would have a camera and we could have lenses and we could set the sun where we wanted it and move it around as we needed. And uh, I have to say, it was really 
so much more fun than I expected and really exciting to do because you really could get in and, and, and you know, read what was going on in, you know, with these characters, even though they were animals. I mean, it's very much something, we, it may be what we read into them and what the situation is and we interpret it that way, but uh, no, it was really, it was a great experience. And, you know, John gave me a lot of freedom and, you know, we would talk in the morning and decide how we wanted to cover. And then if we would come up with new ideas, we would try those. And it was really, it was pretty remarkable, but very much, despite the fact that it was virtual reality, it was very much like reality. And that's what I really appreciated about the, all the tools that we had, so. Repeat after me, kid. Hakuna Matata. What? Hakuna Matata! Hakuna Matata! Hakuna, most people get a bigger reaction when we say it the first, okay. Some people well, start anyway, clapping Hakuna immediately. Hakuna Matata, it, it means no worries. One and a, okay. I, I do I'm the just, counting I wanna, here. I wanna count. Why don't we count together? Okay, that's a good idea. All right. One and a two and a. Hakuna Matata! What a wonderful phrase! Hakuna Matata. It ain't no passing craze. It means no worries for the rest of your days. It's our problem-free philosophy. Hakuna Matata. Roger, for you, uh, you reteamed with Sam Mendes to make 1917, and then for the Goldfinch, you worked with John Crowley for the first time. Would you talk about those relationships? It's interesting with Sam because hearing you talk about diff people's different approaches and that. When I first worked with Sam, it was on Jarhead, and he'd been working with Connie Hall, right? And Connie had told me about Sam and how he works in a meticulous way, and he would, Connie would talk about how he'd get frustrated because there'd be storyboards on Perdition, and, and he found them a little restricting, and it just, Connie didn't like storyboards. And so I'm thinking, I'm going into this, and yet on Jarhead it was like, okay, let's shoot the rehearsals, we're going to do it all handheld. So it was just for me, like, I was back in shooting documentaries again, it was great. So I thought, well, is this the way he's going to be working? And then Rev Road and Skyfall, they were totally different again. And then on 1917, it's totally different again because of the style of the film. We didn't do storyboards or anything, but we had to shoot rehearsals. We shot rehearsals on a little, I made up a little, you know, run and gun video camera. We could do it loosely with. And then we started doing it with the camera we were gonna use so we could get the whole sense of timing and the flow of the whole film. We didn't shoot everything, but some of the key scenes we did. So what I'm saying is that like every film that I've done with him has been very, very different, you know, which is, which is what I really like. I like that excitement of that going into a different challenge with the same person. And obviously, when you work with somebody on a number of films, you have a kind of trust, a mutual kind of sense of, sense of how each other approaches something. So, you know, yeah, mm. that's about it, really. Okay, and then um, what did you talk about when you first met John Crowley? Uh, well, with John, well, you know, the biggest problem was obviously the translation of the book. Or, and, and, you know, but the film is not the book, you know. Uh, I think there's a, <laughs> kind of quite a bit of criticism because it, some people seem to have never liked the book in the first place and things like that. But we weren't making the book. The film has to stand on itself. So um, that was our first discussion. But, I mean, that's, again, a different approach because each... Each, you know, we looked at locations, we looked at how we would block out shooting the film where we go, very technical level. But otherwise, in terms of shooting, we would do it like in a, probably a very conventional sense, doing blocking with the actors every day and then working out our shots from there. And this was your first time working with Aman. Yes, <laughs> yes. I didn't know her, I didn't know her work or anything when I got the, the script. And, you know, you get like this kind of cover page. So I read the synopsis and it's like, okay, it's a film written by Shia LaBeouf while on rehab about his traumatic childhood with his abusive father and overcoming that trauma. So I'm like, okay, this is very interesting. I'm the daughter of two shrinks, you know, I come from Argentina. Everyone goes to the shrink or is a shrink there. So everything that has to do with therapy 
and transformation and identity, I always really gravitate towards. And I think if I look back at all my films, there's always those themes there. So I was like, mm, yeah, this is interesting. And then I look underneath, it said budget 3.5. I was like, this is going to be very hard <laughs> even to find a crew. Uh, but then I was like, who is this person that is going to, you know, take this on board? And so I looked at her movie, Bombay Beach, which is a documentary, her first documentary that she shot. And that was like meeting her. That was before we got to, to meet. And I could see, you know, her empathy and her rawness and honest approach at the same time as this very, this very poetic eye. So I could immediately see that this was a, a person that I could, you know, collaborate and, and, and be on, on the same wavelength to approach something as challenging as this blending of territories of documentary, fiction and therapy. You know, I had navigated all, the, all of them separate and sometimes we merge documentary and fiction, but to bring, you know, a, a highly triggering therapeutic situation to the equation, I had never done that before. Well, you, you, because you have described this as film therapy, what was it like to work with Shia as the lead actor, but also the writer who wrote this based on very personal experiences? Yeah. You know, Shia's method, so like a month before we started shooting, he was living in a motel and he was channeling his dad already. So when he would come on set, he would come just before we start shooting. Sometimes we wouldn't even have a rehearsal and we'll just roll the camera. So inside him was the writer, was the actor, but it was so much more stuff going on. He's also very clever with mise-en-scene and he knows what the camera is doing. He knows how to direct the space and the other actors as well. So what happened was mainly we were all like jamming around him. We had no way to prepare before, even we had a very short prep, but also we couldn't really prep because we could not tell him what to do. It was kind of all the opposite to Caleb's experience with the control, the documentary with the animals. This was like put a lion in a room and just shoot, you know, whatever happens. So we had ideas like, yeah, he should be there and the kid should be there and the window is there. So then, you know, they're going to have a good light because Alma wanted to have something very real and raw, like her documentaries, but she also wanted me to bring my emotional lighting to the equation. But I, I don't know where he's gonna go, so I have to be ready for 360 and at the same time not go super flat. So that was the main challenge. Um, and you said that you actually used dimmers so that you Yeah, could so what I did, because also we had to be really far away from Shia because he's going through really serious stuff, you know. He's like, for the first time, I mean, you can talk about things in therapy and all the wounds that you have from childhood, but there's that moment when you are in costume and you are there and the cameras are rolling and for the first time you are enacting the traumatic scene, playing the, um, the other side and the other point of view. So as he's doing it, he's understanding his father, he's forgiving his father, he's like, there's so much stuff going on. So we had to be as invisible as possible. And once he comes into the set, even sometimes he would come and we were not ready yet. We needed half an hour, but he was there. He was on the emotional space. I was like, roll the camera. So every day we learned how to approach the, the, the very special situation. And we just had to be as less disruptive as possible and as invisible as possible. So I had to design a way where mostly I was designing practicals with the production designer, which were LEDs and everything, all the money we had, which was nothing, we put it on wireless uh, devices. So I was outside the room on a monitor with all my dimmers, like a DJ basically. And I had a, a, an operator with headsets. So depending on what he was doing, we were just like, okay, like, you know, go profile. And then I would just like, okay, he's going to probably do the scene by that window. So that's going to be the key and that's going to be the feel. And I, like, I had to make the decisions in the moment. And most of the time he would just do it once, you know, without rehearsal. So it was really challenging in that way. Like, I don't think I had that kind of challenge before. And luckily it was at the time where we had the wireless technology so that we could really dance around him and, and, and still do something stylized and dark when it was needed. I had a chicken named Henrietta the Fowl, the world's first daredevil chicken. Dad, can you loosen the back part? And I used to know, because all chickens, what do you need me to do? Just loosen the back part. Okay, one sec. So I used to 
I had this chicken and used to put her on my head and I'd do these cartwheels and she'd run from my head to my butt, from my head to my butt over and over like that. Because I spent a lot of time with chickens, you know, in the rodeo, you know? Had another trick where I put the chicken on top of my head. Here, I found it. And I'd run this little electrical wire down my sleeve to her, put a little KFC bucket out there, light it on fire for drama. And I'd hit that charter Henry to fly off my head and land in that bucket. Hey, old crowd ate it up. I'm telling you, it was a big deal. Yeah, it was good. Once over for Stevie Nicks, she came out to the forum. Ow! Dad, ow. What do we say about talking like that? That I'm not supposed to talk That you're not supposed to talk like that. And you're going to apologize to Pam, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yeah, you are. I'm very sorry, Pam. Roger, in the case of 1917, this was shot to look like one continuous shot to capture the sense of real time in the experience. Would you talk about how how this was shot? How long were each of your takes and what was involved? <laughs> the longest take was about eight and a half minutes. Pretty long. And it's all, the camera's always moving. So it's, there were some very complex setups, but that's what I was alluding to earlier, that the whole key to it was pre-production. I think we actually came in under schedule, which is probably the first film I've ever been on, apart from a Coen Brothers movie that's been under schedule, because we were so prepped. You know, and it was a matter of we shot a lot of tests early on with different pieces of equipment and figured which piece of equipment we wanted for each particular section of the film, you know, as you say. And then the key was how you're going to join it up from location to location and move to move without everything just being a wipe on a, you know, a tree or something. You know, it was, it was we wanted to sell it a bit more kind of um, interestingly than that in a way. So, but most of it was, I say it was, what was key to it was the prep, which I, you know, was a totally different way of working that I've done with Sam or anybody else really, you know. Again, we haven't seen it yet, but is it a lot of handheld or what were no, the camera movements? Well, it's handheld only in the sense that there's a, a grip running around with a, 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 a you know, a stabilized, camera but I'm operating it remotely you know so it's very much a ballet between you know the grip of myself and the shot and the actors and it was very interesting we had to do a lot of lot of rehearsals I say just technically and then a lot of rehearsals with the actors as well just to get a sense of the rhythm and what piece of equipment we could use I mean some of it's Steadicam quite a bit of it's this Trinity rig and Ari, Ari's developed this Trinity rig which is a kind of You've got a stabilized system, but it's an arm, so the operator can move it up and down, but still part of it is remotely operated. And, uh, and I say a lot on it, uh, you know, wire cameras, all sorts of things. Three miles deep, field fortifications, defenses, artillery, the like of which we've never seen before. The second are due to attack the line shortly after dawn tomorrow. They have no idea what they're in for. And we can't warn them. As a parting gift, the enemy cut all our telephone lines. Your orders are to get to the second at Kwasi Wood, one mile southeast of the town of Akust. Deliver this to Colonel Mackenzie. It is a direct order to call off tomorrow morning's attack. If you don't, it will be a massacre. Rodrigo, you also had to use a very specific type of rig for the Irishmen, for the scenes where they were doing digital work for Robert De Niro and some of the other actors. Would you describe the rig and what was this process like for you? Did you have to light differently or what were the unusual challenges that you had? Well, there was this uh, requirement in the movie that uh, the, the actors for maybe half of the film uh, around that had to look younger than their age. And of course, to with makeup, it's easier to make someone look older, but younger, unfortunately, not quite there yet, <laughs> physically, right? So it was, it required CG face replacement and things of this sort. So um, ILM developed this way of achieving it with where each angle, each camera would need witness cameras, two witness cameras. So that meant that every camera setup had uh, three cameras on the head or on a remote head or, you know, we steady cam, whatever it may, may be. So we had to figure out how to make that nimble and lightweight enough to function and to not limit in any way the, the style of the movie, you know. So that was, that was a challenge. And at one point also there was talk about having, for technical reason, having to not utilize tungsten lighting, which was a huge problem for me. But we figured it out, we tested, and, uh, and it was 
totally possible to shoot it in any in any way that I wanted, you know, in terms of lighting. So it was a challenge mostly in terms of figuring out this rig and and how to make it lightweight and small enough. Once that was done in pre-production, then it was pretty seamless. I mean, we shot the film as if it were just one camera. But sometimes, uh, you know, Scorsese likes to shoot uh, dialogue scenes with two cameras simultaneously, sometimes three. So in scenes where we're shooting with three cameras, that actually meant nine cameras. And, uh, you know, in each camera with a focus puller, you know, so it became a pretty big rig. And as Natasha was talking about, where, you know, you try to be as invisible as possible. It's hard to be invisible <laughs> with all this gear and monitors and all that. But still, I really try to, to do that because all this paraphernalia and also lighting, all that can be distracting for actors. So I try to keep it to a, as much a minimum as possible. Try not to, you know, do extensive marking or, you know, uh, or any of that and, and, and let them move around. You have to kind of think what they might do, what actors might do, you know, and prepare for that and, and sort of be ready with the lighting in case they, you know, cover their faces or they do it under the table, whatever it may be. And Scorsese is, you know, such a director of, of, of the actors in the sense that he really respects the actors' opinions and choices. So, if an actor decides he's gonna, you know, hang from a chandelier or whatever it may be, that, that's probably what we're gonna do. And lots of these things happen in the moment, so you just have to be ready. And and uh, so when you have this extra added complication of of uh, you know these big camera rigs, you know you don't want that to become the focus of of the shoot. You know, so we try to make it as invisible as possible. What do all of you? Um think or are you talking about with your directors do you do you think we're going to be start seeing more films made in this way utilizing cg for dh and things like that <laughs> but, it. no it's already like, happening well, yeah i mean the thing is is that i mean i've done tons of movies i mean this the lion king's the first movie i did in really in cg but you know, even the most conventional movies I've done over the last 15, 20 years have lots of CG in them. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter how conventional a movie it is, there's always something, some background that gets changed or some, you know, pimple that gets removed from an actor's face or something that happens. I mean, it's really, it's just become so yeah. ubiquitous in the process of making movies now. And it's always invisible because you might do a movie that's just, as simple and old-fashioned as it can possibly be, but there's still a lot that goes on. Um, you know, I mean, Bob can, you know, talk about doing films with Quentin where it's all on film and it gets finished on film, but, I mean, I'm, I suspect there's some CG in there. And yeah, there's not. a few and shots, but it's extraordinarily rare with Quentin. To, yeah. He doesn't want visual effects, but so we try to do everything. Yeah. But then on the other, on the other hand, uh, Kids have it in their phones. I mean, they're doing CGs, this face app thing that they change ages. You know, we spent millions making an actor younger, or and and with this, this face app, you 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 change everything, and it's cheap, and it's for nothing. So you know, we didn't have that, Rodrigo. <laughs> no, no, we did not have that. But <laughs> I know. It's crazy. Now, were all the cameras you used all of the same quality, or were they different cameras for the? For the visual effects. Different cameras, but basically, uh, you know, our requirement was that the main camera be able to do 4K and then the witness cameras were mini. So you're working with like the LF or? No, no, we, we used the, the red uh, helium for the yeah, central yeah. camera. And then your witness cameras were what? Were minis, Alexa minis. minis yeah. Minis on top of. Yeah, no, that was a lot of weight. It's a lot of weight. <laughs> and, you know, remote focus and you know, that was heavy. So whatever was holding it had so to be. So the witness had to be 4K as well? No. Oh, so it was the, 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 the original mini. Yeah. The original mini. But then I knew that there were going to be instances where we had to be very close to something, to a wall or, you know, these sort of things. So I insisted, and this was tricky, but we figured out that we would be able to take off one of the cameras and put it somewhere else. You know, so that was also part of the rig, yeah. you know. So now we're to the right, so this camera now goes on top. And, you know, it was, I mean, the camera team, man, they had the work uh, cut out for them. Trevor now Lewis I understand was, why you had three ACs. Yeah. For each camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And so you're changing your lenses for each one. Yes, and and then pulling focus for each one. And, wow. Yeah. So yes, wow. hopefully, hopefully that sort of stuff. If if this kind of uh, technology is more, you know, re required more and more, 
simplified, like it happens with technology. You know, so it's not necessary to have this big three-headed monster, as we call it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because you ask about that, but I mean, I really have, you know, you're focused on the movie you're making, and you have no idea where that goes in the future. I mean, whatever the technology that you use, Rodrigo, and what we used on Lion King, or what. You know, I, I don't know, ultimately it takes a creative artist to say, this is a good tool for us and we're going to use it, and, and a director who sees the value in something. But, Absolutely. you know, as far as, you know, me seeing into the future about how the technologies that we've used, I mean, you, you, you tend to focus on what you're doing and, and using it to the best of your ability within the context of the movie you're making. So. You know, I'm excited that there are all these different technologies, but at the same time, I don't know where it's going to go, and I don't think any of us really has an idea of where it might go. Rob allowed me into your room, oh. and uh, he showed me a few shots you were doing, and he said, would you like to do it? So I said, yeah, of course. You know, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Let's see what I come up with. Exactly. I immediately started the shot. I said, Caleb needs to be here. I need to go. Oh, so you actually... <laughs> Oh, you actually started because your shot was so much better. I could not get a handle on the VR and the, what moved the camera, whether the dolly was moving, where I was crazy. And... My my grandson, who just turned eight, but when was six or seven when he came in, you know, had it figured out immediately. Yeah. I mean, he could, he could fly around in the three dimensional space and figure it out. And then, you know, my wife was there and. She was having trouble, and he would have to explain to her what to do, you know, about, you know, the, the lasers that would fly you around and right. reaching up and instantaneously going from, your light. Yeah, going from one place to a, a mile away in another part of the set, you know, in, in a... a but Rob was, Rob was playing with my mind. Yeah, sometimes sure I would was. be pushing, and then he'd be craning, and I would have no clue how, what, what to do. It was, like, it was like the grip deciding, oh, you're going to do a boom up now. And doing what? <laughs> my camera would suddenly start to go over your over Lion King. I go, no, 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 we don't want to do that, Rob. That's, you're playing with my mind, dear. Let's get out of here. <laughs> Bob's referring to Rob Legato, who, who developed all those tools and is the most extraordinary and your amazing, supervisor. Amazing yeah. I have a question about the lighting. Um, would you, I know you can place the sun wherever you want, but it's always been kind of my dream to be able to light with the place, you know what I mean, where it's, it's, yes, you might have the sun, but then everything else is bouncing off of furniture and right. grass and trees. And is that something you use as tools when... No, absolutely. And, and the thing that was really strange about it is that you could, you know, like lots of times when you do a movie in live action and you're outside, you're shooting over a whole day, a scene that takes place in five or ten minutes. And so you'd think it'd be a perfect opportunity to be able to put the sun and leave it there. Well. Right. When we went in and would change shots, we would always move the sun. I mean, we literally were doing what we all do in a real life situation where I would turn around and I would see this flat light and I wouldn't like it and, you know, I would move the sun around. And, you know, it became, I mean, we literally were, you know, adjusting the same way that we adjust when we make a live action movie. And I thought that was really sort of fascinating because I never expected that to be the case. Except that you don't have to have your pen glass looking at the clouds and the sun and the, you know, that stress. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because I worked, I was working at DreamWorks, so I had a trainee dragon. And um, when this new software came out where you could take a, you know, 360 capture of, you know, the light in a forest or the light at a beach or whatever, they started using it and putting that in on the shots and said, well, this is the reality. And you'd look at it and go, yeah, but that's not what we really want. And suddenly they, they then had in their heads that, okay, we can leave the sun in the right place and we can do all the shots mm -hmm. in the same light. And they said, but I never do that in live action. And I certainly don't want to do it here because if you look at, I, said, I, said, I quoted um, Robin and Marion, you know that film uh, Watkins shot mm -hmm. of uh, Dick Lester. And every shot is backlit. I mm -hmm. said, you watch it. Every shot in the film is backlit. <laughs> I said, sometimes you want to do that. It's not yeah. about the reality. It's, it's about each individual it's, shot and how you it's, use it's, the light. It's really the impression of reality. And, and yeah. one of the things is that the tools within you know, our virtual space would actually respond to anything that was in there. And so if you had the sun in one place and a tree, it would cast a shadow. And what would happen is that they would build these sets and we'd be in the middle of a forest and there'd be 
no light shining through and we want to have some broken sunlight. And part of my job lighting was to sit with the lighting director and pull trees out until we got the shadows and light that we wanted. And then that became a problem later on because we were dealing with a slightly you know, lower resolution set and when they would complete it with real trees that looked absolutely real with the exact leaves and branches and everything, it would be different. So then you have to translate to them, you know, as they would finish it, to pull out some trees to get back to what you had originally. So it was really, it was fascinating. But, but you were talking about the interactive lighting, yeah. too, is that there's a tool, um, you know, that, that they use where it actually takes into consideration the fact that you're sitting next to somebody with a red shirt or with, mm-hmm. with a ground that's white or green and it reflects, you know, the same way. So it, it actually, it actually takes into consideration all the things that are around, the sky, you know, that's lighting it, that may be blue or it may be white because of clouds, or the ground, which may be, you know, red earth or it may be, you know, white rock or whatever it happens to be. And it takes that into consideration in terms of the reflections that, that come from the shadow side. And can you dial the amount of that, those reflections? Like you can say, like, I actually well, want to it, bounce more, but I don't actually, want to see the bounce itself. Yeah, you actually don't. You actually have to alter the, the reality there yeah. to actually get that effect because it it actually analyzes what is there and it 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 creates that reality in the interest of time i think we're going to talk about some of the other movies so we can get to everybody caesar in your case you were saying that you took inspiration from michelangelo and um and other artists would you tell us about how you applied that to shooting locations in the sets including the set for the sistine chapel yeah, well, when we approached how we were going to shoot it and how it was going to look, one thing that was obvious it was that we had a big chunk of the movie happening in the Sistine Chapel, and then long dialogue, like 14 pages dialogue in the Sistine Chapel. And all of, all of the rest of the film, the, the art of that period of that was very present in many other things, like the film starts with the camera going through a slum that is painted with graffitis that look like affrescos. They are flat in Beja 21. So this came like shouting to us that that was the image approach, thinking of that reality. And since it's a, since it's a beginning of a moment of transition in, in the church, that we thought it was important, like, you know, things are not established, things are being discovered in the dialogue of these two men. We said it's something that is being born, like painting. And if you think of painting, there is a period of painting when Botticelli and all of them just, their interest was to paint. They were not worried with light. Light comes afterwards. You know, light comes with Caravaggio and Rembrandt and like 100 years afterwards. So we go to that period there, 1400 or 1500 beginning, where it's a flat reality. So, and you know, there's obvious, you're shooting a film in in temples and churches, so you know, the temptation is, you know, shafts of light with smoke and harsh light and so, no, but it's not about that. It's about them integrating to this flat reality. So, we went in that direction. And for example, we have another 11-page dialogue in a garden, which the most natural thing would say, you know, choose a nice hour of the day when you have the slow, the, the lower light and so on. So, no, let's go it flat. Let's go it when the sun is and sort of frontal to have these characters as we see them in the Sistine Chapel, just lit frontally and integrated so our separation was mostly in color and color in post-production also. So it was, it was a different approach, you know, lighting-wise and everything. And Bob- post-production is pretty important, what he's really saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because yeah. We, we are all driving more and more towards post-production. Yeah, I had, I had an excellent colorist with me, Argentinian Javier Hick which I fell in love with. We, and we started six months prior playing with every color, every location I went, I'd shoot a little 
with my little camera shoot and we'd go into the color suite and 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 do this dialogue with the with a, a production designer you know we need to go in this direction and we need to that because we are going to we're not going to paint with light we're going to paint with mouse <laughs> with mouse <laughs> oh, with mouse. Oh. Yeah, they don't even mouse. use mouse anymore, right? I, I have like a mouse, yeah. after, after Victoria's painting with light, somebody will, will write painting with mouse. <laughs> and this is more or less what we're talking about. Yeah, it? no, I mean, it, it's part of our lives now. Do you know the Beatles? Yes, I know who they are. Of course you do. <laughs> Eleanor Rigby. Who? Eleanor Rigby. No, I don't know. You know, Yellow Submarine. Dum, 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 dum. Yellow Submarine. That's silly. <laughs> It's very funny. <laughs> You've been one of my harshest critics. The way you live is a criticism. Your shoes are a criticism. You don't like my shoes? <laughs> you think you know better? We are no longer part of this world. You know, the hardest thing is to listen, to hear his voice, God's voice. Bob, tell us about creating 1969 Hollywood, another different challenge. Well, I've sort of been in that path a little bit before with Doors, and most of this is what It comes down to, is, I think, for all of us, if we have a great production designer and great production design, we're going to shoot the best-looking film we can possibly shoot. And Barbara Ling did a phenomenal job in creating what was that time period. And along with Quentin's mind, in terms of the details, it was all provided to you. So it's more about capturing and putting the camera in the right place to try to capture that. And then on top of that, I think, for Quentin, the use of KHJ, as a base for the movie added the element that solidified the film being into a time period. So for me, I shot in a very similar way to many other things that I've shot before, except for I tried to go into more grain, push the stock a little, work a little more contrast. But I believe firmly in the, the collaborative spirit of having people at art direction, uh, props, production designers, and they're not given, we need to give them more credit. It's not the cinematographer himself who's actually doing a lot of the great work that we achieve. It's somebody else. And some you can, areas you couldn't control, like Spawn Ranch. I know you said that was one of them. Spawn Ranch, yeah. I had no control over Spawn Ranch. It was really going more into your world, frontal light. And uh, I embraced it as much as I could. And it's very difficult, just like you said, you're into a set and you are... You got, I got four days or three days on a set, and the weather's shifting remarkably between hard sun, side light, top light, backlight. You, you, know, you can work as close as you can with a director to try to allow him, allow him to allow you to be able to work in the best light possible to keep a consistent feel so that if you do slip into backlight in the future, I mean into overcast, I could be in backlight and it makes an easier transition than a front light does. A few of the sequences he was unwilling to really alter, and we ended up with some mismatches, but... Fooled me. <laughs> and I, I, love that, I love that Spawn Ranch sequence. It's, it's really, I mean, it's one of the great sequences in the movie, light. you know? It's yeah. wonderful. And I, and I agree with you what you say about production designers, too, because, yeah. I mean, even on Lion King, James Shinwin was the production designer, but you look at the movie and you go, well, what's production design? But every one of the those areas were designed. And what's amazing about it, how do you design something that's a reality that's, you know, nature and make it feel like nature and not make it feel too designed? And, you know, I mean, obviously Pride Rock has to be what it is, but everything else, I mean, it, it's really remarkable how much, you know, is added by someone who has an eye for creating a reality in every situation. And working strongly in collaboration with them. And with the director, to, just to be hand in hand. The more that, that you are, the more fortunate you probably will be in the shooting. Mm -hmm. 
The more they understand about lighting as well, because sometimes they can do a great job, but then everything is in the same tone, and then you have to do your lighting in order to create those separations. And when you already have a set that has those separations, then you can just do your lighting without starting by solving problems, but just like lighting the amazing job that they, they've done. Natasha, there's still a limited number of women serving as director of photography, and I did want to touch on this. How did you break in, and do you see things continuing to change? Uh, yeah, I think, I, I think things are changing a lot. It's just we're planting seeds, and we have to be patient that those seeds have to grow. I went to film school in England, same film school as Roger, actually. And yeah, I was in film school at the end of the 90s. There wasn't so many women there. But it wasn't just that. It was like, at the time, that was like pre-internet. That's how old I am. And there wasn't so many role models for me to see. Like, I knew, like, Ellen was doing stuff and Agnes Godard. Like, I could maybe count with one hand the women that were doing this job. But I couldn't have access to see them doing this job. You know, how, how do they behave on set? Is it, like, different to the men that are coming to teach in the school? And I see how they do it from their, you know, masculine energy. So it was like, uh, how you say, like walking in the jungle, you know, with the machete, like trying to find your own way. Like, how do you do this as a woman instead of trying to show like you can also be a man? Um, it took a long time, you know, to really be able to, to find my voice and free myself from trying to prove that I could, you know, be very strong and do handheld all the time and, and all those things. And I think this is what's great about now. I think like the women that are just starting they get people like me and Rachel and all my colleagues to come to the film school and talk to them. And they get to see our work out there. They get to see interviews. And they might navigate it in an easier way than what we did. And there, there is more of them. Now we just have to wait until all those seeds slowly grow and they start to do their work and have the opportunity to create a body of work and, you know, become. But you also work with some very good directors like Lucia. Yeah. XXY. She's very strong <coughs> and a brilliant director. Yeah. So she must have been somewhat, I mean, she's in a masculine world and she's a brilliant director. So she must have been somewhat of a guiding light or a mentor to some degree. Yeah. I mean, I worked, I think, with female and male directors, probably more male than females. But yeah, I work with a lot of female directors. But I, I would say, like everyone in my generation, they, everyone was trying to find, you know, how do you do it? And not, not so much in the artistic expression of the job, but more in, in terms of how you navigate a set that is organized with such a patriarchal military paradigm. And how can you be in that position of power, kind of directing the ship, but do it from a different, more feminine approach, you know? And I think we're still, I think we're still, still going to keep transforming as you get more women in all the different positions on a set. I think we're still very much on a military structure, which we all think is the right and only way to do films, because of course you need your own time is money paradigm as well, so you need all this organization. But I think, you know, when, when you bring the female energy to it, also some things change and soften and get a bit more blended. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens, you know, in 10, in 20 years when it's, we're really like more on 50-50 and, and that dance is happening, you know, uh, in, in a freer way. I think a lot of women were still, I mean, maybe now not so much because I kind of prove myself, but a lot of women out there, you know, still a lot of energy in trying to prove that you can do things like men do, instead of like bringing your own way of doing things. And cinematography is such a global language, even beyond male-female. Um, what is everyone seeing in terms of diversity at the moment? Yeah, I, I have a, so when you came out of film school, did you start shooting right away? Or yeah. did you work your way up? No, I, we were six students and everyone was a focus puller that wanted to become a DP and went to film school. Uh, I don't know why they let me in. I had some good still photographs. No, but I mean, that, to me, that's really an interesting change because now that, you know, there are film schools where they're actually training people and they come out of the film yeah. schools and they're already shooting movies, it makes a big yeah. difference I mean, than people movies. having to work their way up within the union structure that yeah. existed in the past. And I think it's yeah. opening it up for, for so many more people, which I think yeah. is really great. I think it's also great, but that's also not only in, in diversity terms, but for everyone, because you do get the opportunity, 
if you're lucky when you come out of film school. I mean, I was doing a lot of short films for free, you know, Film Four and Film Council in England were like really doing a lot of short films at that time. So I got to do a lot of short films with friends that I knew from film school and then music videos and like really small projects, you know, like I was very poor for a few years until I, I got my first work. Yeah, but, uh, but I, had the, I had the chance to try everything I wanted and, and be very bold and brave and not have to compromise because requiring some certain degree of safety to keep my job. And I think when you're going up the ladder, it's amazing because you get to learn from other DPs, which I never had the experience to be in any of your sets, and I would have loved that. But it also takes you, you know, maybe five years, ten years of doing like very technical stuff where you have a little bit of time for learning and observing the creativity. And then by the time you have the opportunity to do your stuff, you're having a kid and you have to pay the mortgage. And it, so when you go to film school, you are still a kid and you get to play and you get to find your voice as an artist without all this pressure. I think for me that was amazing. I cannot imagine if I would have been an assistant, you know, I'm quite small, like carrying all these boxes and stuff. I don't know what would have happened with timings of life and the moment you have the opportunity to do something. So in that sense, I think, I think film school is great. Yeah. I think talking about diversity, I think what you were saying, Natasha, I think the seeds are being planted right now. I don't think, you know, we're there, but even, even here, you know, we're Latin America, Europe, United States, just right here in the room. And I, I find that uh, I appreciate about the film business that I don't feel myself the, the, the borders that might exist in other businesses, you know, and, and I think it's just a global thing that is happening, but I feel a, a huge camaraderie with the, you know, filmmakers from around the world and we're communicating also because of the nature of what we do. We're constantly traveling, working with crews in different countries and just realizing how much the same we all are and uh, hopefully it'll, you know, keep pushing, but I feel that uh, we're fortunate to be in a business that does allow for that. Where Almost everybody at this table has grown out of a history of film. We've watched many films from very different times, and a generation now is growing where they very rarely go backwards in time to look at films. I mean, the new wave for us is in very different capacities, whether it's, you know, French New Wave, whatever, or whether it's, you know, Lindsay Anderson, whatever it might have been, or where it comes, you know, it's like, to see Pointe de Cuervo, to see Battle of Algiers. I mean, I grew up in that world and constantly studied it. I see a lot of people now that have not seen, they wouldn't even know a couple of your films, and they've never seen Natural, they're never going to see Natural. It's like, and it's, you know, my films, they wouldn't even be able to tell me what, you know, Platoon was. It just, uh, what was that? Yeah. But I, I think, you know, I mean, if you're going to be a writer, you have to read. And have to so, read, and I mean, I think it's important. I mean, I know my kids know every movie. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know whether it's my influence or whether they just were interested. But I mean, I think it's really valuable to, uh, you know, I mean, if, if you're going to communicate visually, you need to expose yourself to every visual medium, and whether it's painting or sculpture or other movies or whatever it happens to be, I think. And, and not only that, but it's also a means of communicating. I mean, the only way I communicate with directors is by referring either to other films or to paintings or to, you know, something visual that becomes our way of, of talking or communicating. And, you know, and, and whether it's not talking at all, which happens with some directors, that's even better. But it all comes from, you know, a, a sort of, you know, collective subconsciousness of, of you know, visual experience. Yeah, I don't know if I could be a filmmaker if I hadn't met, uh, if I hadn't seen the work of Bertolucci. You know, or go back even deeper than that. You know, of course, we can go way back until you see Orson Welles and the things he was doing with cameras that we could never have imagined doing. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, Pasolini and... But also, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, you, you talk about the French New Wave, and that was certainly what influenced me. And part of what influenced me was the fact that I never thought I could make a Hollywood movie with all the giant, you know, lights and cranes and everything. But the French New Wave, you kind of looked at it and go like, you know, you can take a camera and you can go anywhere in the world. And if you have a story to tell, you can tell it with just a camera. And it's, there's something really wonderful about that. I mean, it's just like, you know, if you're a writer, you need a pencil and a piece of paper or a typewriter, and you can create some great piece of literature that, you know, that will influence people and 
you know, there's something wonderful about that. I, I, I would be a, less, a bit less pessimistic because I agree with you that the new generation has a huge offer, but in that huge offer, I see them researching and going back. Like the other day, kids of 16 years old I was talking to were talking about Battle of Algeria and, oh, great. Oh, yeah, I saw it on YouTube, you know. No, no, I think, I think it's there. I just don't I think, think it's... Yeah. I was at a film there. school not that long ago, and I'm not going to mention which film school it was. And I was talking to students, and some of them had never seen Dr. Strangelove and didn't know who Andrei Tarkovsky was. Mm-hmm. Now, I found that chilling, yeah, no, actually yeah, chilling. Right, but... uh, a film school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that, well, it's not the kids' well, fault, it's the teachers. Oh, it's, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's, it's such a blind spot, yeah. you know? Yeah. You have to have your own... But, but I see them, I, I feel them, you know, the, the, the kids I relate to, very curious, very, very curious. All I'm trying to say is we should and push harder to, to have people. Yeah. It's not who's responsible, but we need to bring people together to have a larger language and less of a dismissal of cinema as an art that should be followed through, very akin to art like painting or sculpture or literature, etc. We need, it's seemingly one of those things... I met a woman in India the other day, I was shooting there, 27 years old. I said, so those glasses look so much like John Lennon. She goes, who's John Lennon? Wow. Okay. I was she's in the Beatles, he's in the Beatles. Who are the Beatles? Okay. Now, I, I just go, okay, wait a minute. I'm going to move on from this conversation. I'll buy you it. You know, it's no problem. I don't really care. Because she didn't even know who Ravi Shankar was. Oh, no. Okay, now... Well, who That's did her she know? country. Who did she know? <laughs> uh, it's mostly Bollywood. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's, it's, it's extraordinary in this day. <coughs> you know, when I was in film school, if you wanted to see a movie, you had to order it up and yeah. see it projected now on the street. Yeah. Now it's all available, yeah, so there's really no incredible. excuse for people not to really... And the Criterion Channel sits there for you, to, to walk into the past so easily. Mm-hmm. And, and iTunes or whatever. We have so many more opportunities to be able to investigate. And you just have to... Encourage. <laughs> At the same time, it's quite fascinating to know that there's one person in the world who doesn't know who John Lennon is. And well, that, what and an that, envy. What an yeah, envy, Yeah, and, you know? and I mean, and I mean she she's missing something, but wow. no, but, you know, because it's also the, the other side of the con with globalization and, like, everyone watching the same stuff and everyone consuming the same stuff. And then to hear, like, of course, we know Bollywood is quite, you know, big, but, yeah, I, I didn't know that. Up to that degree, you know, like you also, I think we travel so much for work and I think like the only place where I've been that really felt like I was in a different culture was Japan. But everywhere else you go, you're shooting a commercial in Africa and they have iPhones, they have Coca-Cola everywhere, like everyone is watching the same stuff. So it's nice also to see that there's places of the world where culture is different. When I walk into a new culture, I immediately want to know more about the culture. So if somebody knows about Bollywood, I immediately ask more about Bollywood. What are the films I should be looking at here? And tell me what you Who are the actors I should be listening to? I mean, what's music I should be listening to, rather, and the actors I should be watching? I mean, I I really care about that when I get to Japan. Who are the animators? Who are the better filmmakers Mm -hmm. nowadays? It's not Ozu, it's not Kurosawa, it's not et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm constantly in a movement to say, I don't just need to know about Sataja Ray in India. Who do I want to look at? Give me contemporary movements. Mm-hmm. And, and often, you know, people don't exactly know, but then I start to research and I start to pull it out, and the next thing I know, I'm watching. Just, just look, just, just, just put them in the wardrobe, all right? What's it going to hurt? Then if you need them, you got them, all right? <laughs> then I got to have a conversation with that wardrobe assistant, and man, she's a bitch. I just don't. Right, please. Look, I, look Rennie, I, I'm asking you to help me out, man. If the, if the answer's no, the, the answer's no. Not, not no with excuses. Hey, man. This ain't a Andy McLaughlin picture, you know. And I can't afford to hire a bunch of guys that smoke cigarettes and sit around talking to each other all day on the chance that I might use them. I got a four-man team here, Rick. If I need more than that, I got to get it approved. And, you know, I, I, I got to look after my dudes. Hey, hey and, and if your dudes were a better match for me, I'd say, oh, okay, you got me. But, but, but that, that's not the case, and you know it. He, he's a great match for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, no. Hey, you could do anything you want to him. Throw him off a building, right? Light him on fire. Hit him with a Lincoln, right? Get creative. Do whatever you want. He's just happy for the opportunity. Rick? Yeah. I don't dig him. 
and I don't dig the vibe he brings on a set. Last topic I wanted to touch on was the state of the scripts and stories that you have access to. When you're reading scripts, um, are you seeing a variety? What, what are your thoughts on what's available today? Superheroes. <laughs> Big silence. Pure, pure. <laughs> I mean, I think in a way there's, um, with also with streaming, uh, you know, the, and, and series, there there is, I think, a greater variety of possibilities for filmmakers, and uh, yeah, I mean, you you do get uh, a big a big scope of different uh, po you know possibilities. I used to never imagine that would you know do television. I did some when I was starting in Mexico, and and uh, and now it's a very interesting medium, really, and uh, you know to be able to do something you know longer form or this sort of thing. I've mostly stuck to features, but I have done a couple of pilots and. Um, and uh, I just think the scope is, is, is broadening, and I find that good in terms of it's not only, you know, the movies and cinemas. Having said that, I am disconcerted because the type of movies I like to do, you know, it's a sweet spot, which uh, in terms of cinema, movies in the cinema has been reduced enormously. And, and uh, indeed, it's now a, uh, just kind of a spectacle thing to actually literally go to a cinema and sit with a group of people. It's most movies tend to have to be blockbusters and, and uh, mass appeal. And that is sad. Although, like I say, there is that option, that venue, which uh, you know, television is now giving us. But I wish and I hope, like I'm sure all of us, that, that uh, people do be still you know, demonstrate their interest in human stories and you know, in, in to actually go to a theater and, and watch you know, some... It's interesting that some of the films that we were looking at here, Amazon and Netflix, are, mm -hmm. are three, of the, three of us here, mm -hmm. which is not... You wouldn't have said that years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Huge streaming yeah, and putting them out. Yeah, and, you know, any filmmaker is going to want to get their film made. And if you go to a studio and they don't want to make it, and somebody, you know, who does streaming wants to make it, you're going to want to make your movie, no matter what. And, you know, it's, you know, it's a new thing on the horizon, um, you know, where it goes from there. I really, I mean, I have no idea. You know, certainly in China, there's still huge audiences for movies. And I think in the United States, it's diminishing somewhat, but it still is holding on pretty well. And, uh, but like you say, I mean, most of the movies that are pretty successful in theaters are big blockbuster kinds of movies. And I mean, I, I agree that, you know, generally I love doing these little movies, but it's, you know, I mean, the ones I've done that I'm really proud of, it's really sometimes hard to even get people to consider seeing them. And uh, that's, that's sort of frustrating. Mm -hmm. I did think it was a nice, not to mention, that Quinn was able with Once Upon a Time to hit over $100 million in the States on an R-rated film. That, that to me was a nice sign of where people are willing to come for a good film. And, you know, and not in an adult version, an R-rated. I thought, there's a sign there. And I think with the right material, we can still draw people in. And his film sort of proven, you know, to walk into 350 or $360 million worldwide is, a, a brave step. It's like you know, it's Nolan, people like that. And we're, we need we need more. Mm -hmm. Thank you, everyone, for such an interesting conversation. Thank, Thank you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.